0: (laughs) The Lord works in wonderful ways and we exalt his name for those kinds of things and I want to say how deeply grateful I was to be able to participate with all of you in just a wonderful evening to the glory of our Lord and I'm excited about the ministry that that musical is going to have once it gets out and, and its ministry is extended in many other places. I want also to mention to you as we come to the close of of the semester, just a couple of things personally that are on my heart. One is, I want you to know something that really is genuinely from my heart, and it's just this uh, basic thought. Um, We need you at the Master's College. I say that with all honesty. Um, You're a marvelous group of young people, challenging, exciting, enthusiastic, positive. Um, great vision for what God wants to do in your life And I just want you to know that that the college needs you we need you And I know that some of you face decisions about coming back or going somewhere else uh, What you ought to do in your future and it's the spirit of the times as I said last week to kind of float around a lot And and people don't know what it's like to make commitments and stick. I just want you to know we need you You're the kind of young people that we want to build this college with and um, I just want you to know that. I'm concerned too that we set a standard for the the freshmen, the young people that will be coming in the future, a standard of commitment so that they can see a student body that's faithful to finish what they start. So they see that that's the pattern that they should have in their own life as well. And I, I just, I want you to know that from my heart. You're just the kind of young people we prayed God would send us and we need you. I want to give you just a very brief report the accreditation committee was here last week for three days four men came in to inspect our college and give us their report they had been here two and a half years before and they had laid down I think eight or ten things that the college needed to do to come more closely into compliance with accreditation standards the college of course is fully accredited just as much as any other college or university in the country but we of course as a small school two years ago had a difficult time with some areas of compliance so they gave us this list at the end of their three days and it was quite incredible through the whole process they kept saying over and over again, we can't believe this college, we can't believe what's happened here. How did you do this? This is remarkable. We've never we've never seen anything like this. One of the men on the committee said to me, I've never seen students like this. What is going on with these students? But we could not get a student to be negative about this school, another one said. We interviewed them. Everyone seems to know exactly what you're doing, exactly where you're going. And they went on to say that not only is this school of a standard to be properly accredited and set in place with all the other institutions of our part of the country, but in many ways exceeds those institutions. In fact, some of the accrediting people were kind enough to say that the future of this college is indeed bright. I personally feel that we could have probably hired three out of the four. They were so enamored with what was going on here when they compared it with the institutions in which they exist This definitely is a college that's going to be heard from in the future And the day will come when having a degree from here and an experience of years in this institution Is going to be something you'll be very, very grateful to God that you have And I was so excited to hear them say you have exceeded the requests for compliance in every area So it's really been remarkable and they're trying to figure out how we did it because they don't understand the work of God It's really exciting Well, Russ asked me to speak this morning on the people who missed Christmas And that's kind of a different approach to Christmas and a little bit historical, but let me just begin with a general thought or two I think we're all pretty much aware that Christmas is upon us But most of the people in the world are going to miss the reality, right? That's not too profound I think everybody knows that a person uh, you say well wait a minute now with everything that's going on you'd have to be dumb dumb deaf and blind to miss christmas everything around us tells us about christmas but i mean the real the real issue the birth of jesus christ the world gets very involved in all kinds of activities most of which have absolutely nothing to do with the person of jesus christ they may acknowledge that he was born but the reality of the meaning of his birth is escaping them for sure Let me give you just a little bit of a look at how Christmas has become cluttered. All right, a little bit of history. In the middle of the fourth century, the Bishop of Jerusalem wrote to the Bishop of Rome and asked him to determine the actual date of Christ's birth. The Bishop of Rome sent word in that fourth century that it occurred on December 25th. By the end of the century, this had become a regularly accepted date for Christmas. Now, most scholars today believe the Bishop was wrong and they also believed the bishop fixed the date arbitrarily, but he had a reason. For centuries before the birth of Christ, the month of December was the occasion for boisterous pagan revelries, wild drinking feasts and so forth. And it marked the winter and it was sort of a celebration in hope that the returning sun would come back and bring its strength. It sort of made winter bearable to have a big blowout at the end of the year. Feasting, adorning homes with evergreens, adorning houses with mistletoe, exchanging gifts, all kinds of general merrymaking were part of the traditional heathen celebration before anybody acknowledged the birth of Christ. The bishops idea apparently was that if we just put the birth of Christ on December 25th We can drop the birth of Christ in the middle of all these wild parties, and maybe we can sanctify everything And get men's minds off this and on to the reality of Christ. It was a nice sentiment and so Christmas or the birth of Christ was dropped in the middle of this wild typical pagan end-of-the-year revelry Unfortunately instead of the birth of Christ sanctifying all of that all of that cluttered up the birth of Christ and Today all the junk is much more on display than the reality of the Son of God being born into the world to the Romans That time of year was a festival called Saturnalia, and it basically involved feasting and sexual orgies and drunken brawls. It was called Saturnalia after Saturn, who was believed to be the god of agriculture, who presided over the planting of all the crops. Gift-giving was popular at the Feast of Saturnalia, and the most common gifts of the Saturnalian Feast were small little idol gods made uh, in all the various forms of the Roman deities, made out of clay, made out of marble, made out of silver, even made out of gold. And at the Saturnalian Feast, candles were lit. Uh, evergreens were given by friends to other friends to hang in their houses so evergreens candles presents have much to do with Saturnalia and absolutely nothing to do really with the birth of Christ in the barbaric Northlands a similar winter festival took place known as Yule from which we often get the idea of Yuletide this was in honor of the gods Odin and Thor And it involved feasting, music, and drinking from horns, as you've seen. In Persia, fires were kindled at the same time of year to the god Mithra, who was the god of light. In England, the Druids gathered in their occultic kind of festivals, and they used mistletoe and made live sacrifices to their deities mistletoe by the way was venerated by pagans in pre-christian times for example the druids gathered the plant mistletoe during the month of December and led by white-robed priests they marched to a sacred oak tree where mistletoe was growing and the chief priest climbed the tree and with a golden sickle cut the plant it was caught in a cloth so it didn't touch the earth and become defiled two white oxen were sacrificed And the mistletoe was given to the people to be hung in their homes, an emblem of peace and good fortune. And whenever enemies met under mistletoe, they embraced. And that's where kissing under the mistletoe came from. The drama of the manger crib was basically popularized by St. Francis of Assisi in the 13th century. 300 years later, uh, Luther brought a tree into his house and decorated it with candles to simulate the starry sky glittering over the stable where Christ was born. And so all of this stuff began to accumulate. But long before Luther did that, pagans had adorned their trees with trinkets around the feasts of their own paganism. And then Holland got into the act and gave us their favorite saint, who happened to be named Saint Nicholas. He was the white-bearded bishop of Asia Minor, who was believed to appear around December 6th riding a white horse and leaving gifts for good little kids, and leaving switches for bad little kids, which doesn't happen. And um, the Dutch named him Sinterklaas, from which we get Santa Claus. Caroling started in the 14th century along with the uh, jesters mu- musicians and mummers in masks and these eight-hour feasts that were characteristic of that event Stockings I wanted to find out where stockings came from too because everybody hangs a stocking on Christmas And of course it's obvious that if you lived in a cold climate, you know that stockings are always hung by a fireplace That's how they dry out and according to the tradition One time when Saint Nicholas was doing his thing, he threw some coins down a chimney and because there were some stockings hanging there being dried out, they landed in the chimney and that started the whole, they landed in the stocking rather, that started the whole thing of putting stockings up and filling them with stuff. The first Christmas card appeared in 1846, designed by Sir Henry Cole, owner of an art shop, and it showed a merry drinking scene. It appeared in London and that got started. And you put all that together and it's all still here in one way or another. Every bit of it from the wild parties and the drunken brawls all the way down to the Christmas cards and everything in it, whether it's good, bad, innocuous, whatever. It's all here, but the sum of it all is that the real significance of the incarnation gets totally obliterated in the process. People miss Christmas. I thought about that. And I thought about the fact that people miss Christmas. And let's go back to the first Christmas and see if there weren't some people who were there when it happened. And even when it was just pure birth of Christ event, they missed it too. Take your Bible for a minute. Look at Luke chapter 2. And let's look at some people who missed Christmas. First of all, the innkeeper missed Christmas, all right? Verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, the birth of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, God incarnate, is described very simply. It says here that Mary gave birth to her firstborn son. No hoopla at all. She gave birth. That child came into this world. She wrapped him in cloths, long, narrow strips, which were wrapped around the baby. What interests me is that she did that. Does that tell you something about the loneliness of the scene? Mary herself gave birth to her own baby and then herself wrapped that newborn infant in those cloths cleansing cloths in one sense warming cloths in another sense and Then laid this child in a manger which is an animal feeding trough. She did that herself also No one accommodated them And I asked myself the question where in the world was the innkeeper? When he saw that there was no room in the inn for the woman he must have seen that she was pregnant There must have been some discussion at the door on the part of Joseph, look, this woman is about to have a baby. I mean, how basically indifferent can you be? And there is no innkeeper there. There is not even someone sent by the innkeeper, no servant. You would think that the simplest exchange of kindness would have demanded the man do something for this, this pregnant woman about to give birth to a child. But I suppose, in a sense, it it is a microcosm of all of the life of Christ, the life of rejection. And where was this occurring? Well, it wasn't in the inn. It was in the stable. Some people think it was a cave. Some think it was an outdoor stable. Some think it was a poor home where animals and people shared the same humble roof. Some have thought it happened in an open field, and I'm not sure we can really know certainly where it was, but it was certainly a place where animals were kept, because there was no place for them in the inn. the word inn is a fascinating word, kataluma in the Greek. It is used in um, Luke 22:11 to speak of a guest room in a house, and that may be a more accurate translation. It may have been that Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem, not knocking on the door of so-called motels, but actually going there to a guest room in a house which had been promised to them. But when they arrived there, the guest room was already taken, and so they were left in the cold. And believe me, it would have been cold, perhaps at this time of year and at night. And so they anticipated very likely hospitality, which they didn't receive. The Septuagint uses five different Hebrew words for this one word, kataluma, and it generally has the idea of a place where burdens are loosed and let down to rest. It's a resting place. So they went to a resting place. Whether it was a, an inn or a guest room, we really can't be certain, but I'm sure they expected to find a place there. Joseph would have made some kind of plans for that, knowing his wife would be great with child and about to be delivered. G. Campbell Morgan has an interesting insight into this. He writes. Cataluma, which is the term translated in really was an enclosure just walls into which travelers might drive their cattle for the night and in which sometimes there were apartments in which they themselves might rest but no traveler could obtain food there there may have been water but no food no host no entertainment there was no room even there there was no room even in the enclosure for the cattle it was just sort of walls that you went into In the supreme hour, which permits of no delay, they had to find some outhouse, as it were, to a dwelling. And there the baby was born, and the mother laid it in a manger. No palace, no dwelling place, no caravan, no room, even in the Cataluma. He was born outside of everything. Even the place where cattle might be sheltered through the night. He was born and laid in a manger in some bleak outhouse outside some dwelling. So he came. The glory of it. The wonder of it. And when he came, he passed the court and passed the palace and passed the dwelling place and passed the inn and passed the cataluma and was born into this world so low down that no baby can ever be born lower. And I find myself asking the question where in the world's the innkeeper? Where's the guy who promised him the room, if there was such a one? Where is the one who said, no, you can't stay in the enclosure? Where is anybody? That she should bring forth her own child, wrap her own child, place her own child in a feeding trough. The pity of it. And the glory of it. And the innkeeper missed Christmas. Totally. And for what reason? How about this? Preoccupation. That doesn't sound like a a mortal sin, does it? To be preoccupied? To be busy? Too busy to bother with this little party of people. The place was crowded, everything was bulging with folks, it was a busy time. I wouldn't say that the innkeeper was particularly hostile, he was just busy. So Christ is just crowded out. The birth of the Son of God, the virgin-born Savior of the world, occurred right there where everybody could see, but nobody cared to look. Too busy. It's the same today. If there's a reason why people miss Christmas today, it has to be preoccupation. Every chamber of men's souls is filled with needless things. I'm telling you, it must, it must literally break the heart of God to see an entire generation of people who are caught up in trivia. Utter trivia, human interest, no room for Christ, little, if any, interest in him. People's time is demanded by a thousand other things that have absolutely no lasting significance. Preoccupation will cause people to miss Christmas. Look at Matthew chapter 2 and let's see a second person who missed Christmas. verse 1 of Matthew 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king behold Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Herod missed Christmas. He missed the reality of what was going on. It tells us in the days of Herod the king who is this man? Let me give you a little bit of insight into Herod. He was an Edomite from Edom, an Idumean. He made himself useful to Rome. He bought himself in to Rome. There were wars and civil skirmishes in Palestine, and Herod became useful to Rome. The Romans trusted him to be privy to certain matters which could be of assistance to them in squelching some of these things. And once Rome finally moved in and stopped the skirmishes and conquered Judea, They set up a procurator or a governor, a Roman governor, by the name of Antipater, who was an Edomite, who was Herod's father. And they appointed him Tetrarch of Galilee around 47 B.C. before Christ. In 40 B.C., under attack from the east, Herod fled to Rome. The Roman Senate then appointed him king of Judea and they gave him an army to enable him to carve out his kingdom. He could be called King of Judea but if somebody else ruled the land the title didn't mean much so they gave him some soldiers to go back and take over. So he did. In 37 BC he won back Judea and his territory spread to include Palestine, Judea, Syria and Lebanon and he took on the title King of the Jews and bore it till he died around 4 AD. He was a vile evil man with no right to rule. He had bought his power from Rome He was really a foreigner, not even a Jew. Now let's see what verse 2 says. This Herod hears about magi from the east coming. He says to them, where is he who has been born, they say to him rather, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Now, he got the word that these men had arrived, these men came in, had an audience with him, they said, where is this king we've heard about? And when he heard that, he was troubled, and he was in a state of panic. He was shaken up, stirred up, agitated. Why? Because this man is a petty king who knows he has no right to rule, and he is frightened because here is a rival king of the Jews. He had that title. Who is this new king of the Jews? The rumor of another king sent him into instant panic. Not only him, but all Jerusalem was fearful. Why? Because they were so afraid of him. A panicked Herod could mean disaster for everybody. Give you a little background for why Jerusalem would be concerned if he was concerned. When he was a young governor in Galilee, he swiftly and effectively destroyed the bands of guerrillas who were moving around the countryside. He was known as one who would not walk away from a fight or a slaughter. He was very efficient in collecting taxes for Rome. So Rome was pleased with him and he had the power of Rome behind him. He was a very capable orator. Apparently he was somewhat of a gifted diplomat. He was decisive in terms of leadership. His timing in terms of battle was effective and he knew how to win a victory. He was the only ruler in Palestine who ever succeeded in keeping the peace and bringing disorder into order because of the sheer terror that people had regarding him. In times of difficulty, he remitted taxes to make things easier. In the famine of 25 BC, he actually melted down his own gold plates to buy corn for starving people so he knew how to endear himself as well. He played the role of a politician to the hilt. On the other side, he plotted to murder all the Hasmoneans who were descendants from the Maccabees, you remember, who had fought for Jewish independence in the intertestamental period. And he was afraid of their descendants, the Hasmoneans, so he plotted to murder them all because he felt that the people would rather be ruled by one of them than by him. He had ten wives and twelve children. The most notable of his wives was a woman by the name of Miriamne, Her brother, the high priest Aristobulus, posed a threat to him, so he planned to murder him, his wife's brother. On a hot day, he invited him to go swimming in the Jordan River near Jericho. And when he went swimming, he sent some other men into the water to swim with him, and they drowned him. And then Herod planned his funeral and cried at the funeral just to carry on the ruse. He had his own wife killed on a phony adultery charge. He executed her mother, Alexandria. He slaughtered his own two sons because he didn't want them to take over his throne. He was paranoid, hopelessly suspicious of everybody, threatened by everybody, and constantly plotting murders. His lust for power and insane fear of jealousy enslaved him so that five days before his death he executed all his sons. The climax of the characterization of this man, when he was about to die, he retired to Jericho. He gave orders that a collection of the most distinguished citizens of Jerusalem should all be arrested on trumped-up charges and put in prison. And he ordered that the very moment he died, they were all to be immediately slaughtered, all of the leading citizens of Jerusalem. The reason, he said, was that no one would mourn his death, and he was determined that some tears must be shed when he died, even if they weren't for him. Now, do you understand why he was agitated when he found out there was another king of the Jews? He was exceedingly angry. Verse 16, when Herod saw that he was tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its environs from two years old and under. He literally massacred all these babies. And then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying a voice was heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. He just massacred everybody that was a threat to him. Rachel was Jacob's beloved wife, father of Joseph, who bore Ephraim and Benjamin, so she was the symbolic mother of Israel. Her tomb is one mile north of Bethlehem. So she sits symbolically on that hill, Ramah, a raised place, weeping for the children as she was seen doing when they were taken captive back in the time of Jeremiah. Matthew sees her, in a sense, symbolically weeping again. Why Why did Herod miss Christmas? Why did he miss the whole point? Not preoccupation, but Fear. Fear. He was afraid that this little child would interfere with his career. He was afraid this little child would interfere with his position, his ambition, his lifestyle, his plans. He was jealous. He was hostile. He was full of hate. And may I say to you that people like that still are around. The reason they reject Jesus Christ is they are afraid. They don't want anybody to control their life. They don't want anybody to threaten their plans. They are very content for Jesus to be a baby in a manger on a Christmas card. But don't let him grow up and be the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Don't get him to go let him grow up and make claims on their life. It is fear, fear of someone else controlling their plans, fear of losing self determination, fearing of giving up their priorities, fear of saying no to their indulgences. They want their own kingdom of sin rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. So Herod missed Christmas because of fear like the end creeper missed Christmas because of preoccupation. While you're in Matthew two, let's look at a third one. Verse four. Herod gathered together all the chief priests and scribes. This is the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews. And he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. Where was the Messiah to be born? And of course they knew. They said to him, quoting Micah 5, 2, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it's been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so the word comes from the, the literati of, uh, of Judaism that the child is to be born in Bethlehem because that is the promise of Micah 5:2. They are the biblical experts, they are the theologians. They are also the third in the list of people who missed Christmas. The Sanhedrin missed Christmas. They knew all the right answers. Chief priests, who would that be? High priest, captain of the temple. The select group of priests, overseers, administrators, treasurers, all the elitist priests, not the common orders of priests, the elite priests, the scribes. Who were they? They were the theologians of the day. They were the the scholars and the authorities of the law of God, both as to its fact and to its interpretation. So all the officers of the theocracy, all of the pharisaical aristocracy and their advisors on theology, comprise the whole Sanhedrin and all of its attendant counselors, and they all know where he is to be born. They are the orthodox literalists with perfect head knowledge. They missed Christmas. They missed it totally, out of absolute indifference. They were so engrossed in their proud, self-righteous, self-sufficient, ritualistic, and legal banter that they ignored the prophets altogether. It meant nothing to them. They were supposed to be the great protectors and great interpreters of the law. They never understood its implications. They are like those of whom Jeremiah says in Lamentations 1-2, Is it nothing to you, all you that pass by? Can you treat this with indifference? Is Is this nothing to you? Indifference may be the ultimate insult It may be a greater insult than hostility Because it is pride at its very worst You can't even interest me with the birth of a Messiah How proud They didn't need a Messiah Why did they need a Messiah? They were already righteous In fact later they cried for the death of Jesus Because he said they were unrighteous There was no recognition of need So there was no recognition of one to meet that need failure to see the desperation of their souls and they missed Christmas look with me to Luke chapter 2 and I want to show you a fourth illustration of missing Christmas and this is sort of indirect but I think it's fascinating now remember all Jerusalem was somewhat aware of the Magi who came and told about the birth of the Messiah certainly the Jewish leaders were aware of that um, prophecy in Micah they were indifferent but all the city of Jerusalem uh, even before the coming of the Magi must have been apprised of prophetic passages in the Old Testament must have been somewhat aware of what the promise of God was they had long awaited a promised one and certainly when John the Baptist did begin his ministry, they seemed ready and anxious and were coming out to him as multitudes, wanting to be prepared for the coming of Messiah. But here at the birth of Christ, it is curious to me that only a few shepherds come. Verse fifteen it came about when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, and this would be right at the at the time of the birth. Before the Magi would ever arrive, they came much later, that the shepherds began saying to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came in haste and found their way to Mary and Joseph, the babies he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. I mean, it seems to me that people wondered, but nobody ever showed up. In a sense, the whole city of Jerusalem missed Christmas. William Barclay has an interesting insight into this. He says, the shepherds were despised by the orthodox good people of the day. Shepherds were quite unable to keep the details of the ceremonial law. They could not observe all the meticulous hand washings and rules and regulations. Their flocks made far too constant demands on them, and so the Orthodox looked down on them as very common people. It was to simple men of the fields that God's message first came. But these shepherds were in all likelihood very special shepherds. He says, We have already noted how that in the temple morning and evening an unblemished lamb was offered as a sacrifice to God. To see that the supply of perfect and unblemished offerings was always available, the temple authorities had their own private sheep flocks. And we know that these flocks were pastured near Bethlehem. Is it possible that these shepherds were in charge of the flocks from which the temple offerings were chosen? It is a lovely thought that the shepherds who looked after the temple lambs were the first to see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Interesting possibility outcasts all Jerusalem was not interested in this all Jerusalem was I suppose to some extent um, aware of prophetic truth all Jerusalem was made aware I'm sure Uh, Maybe not all Jerusalem, but a great portion of it As the shepherds came back and gave their report And the report must have spread Certainly where you have the hope of the coming of a Messiah When somebody says they've gone and seen and heard What the shepherds had seen and heard That would spread But nobody seems to show up And that's a sad thing It's kind of like today, I guess, in a sense that There are many people who hear about the reality of Christ and the birth of Christ and the details are given, but that just doesn't matter to them. I guess we could say the reason Jerusalem wasn't interested was that Jerusalem was already religious. And later on in Luke chapter 2, when we read about Simeon and Anna, they seem like the only two people in the whole city who cared. Where's everybody else? They're into their religion. Their ritual and their system of religion seem to be void of any intrusion by reality. I guess they remind me a lot of religionists today who miss the truth. I read not long ago a statement by Martin Luther that I found to be very interesting. And he's always writing against the papists, you know, the Roman church. He says, indeed, the papists still want to retain the mass, The invocation of saints and their invented works by which we are to be saved. This is as much as to say, I do not believe in the Savior and Lord whom Mary bore. And yet they sing the words of the angel. They hold their triple masses at Christmas and they play their organs. They speak the words with their tongues, but their heart has another savior, and the same is true in the monasteries, he says. If you want to be saved, remember to keep the rule and regulations of Francis, and you will have a gracious God. And at the the Diet of Augsburg, they decided to stick to this. In the name of all the devils, let them stick there. It has been said sufficiently that this savior lies in the manger. But if there is any other thing that saves me, then I rightly call it my savior. If the sun, moon and stars save, I can call them saviors. If St. Bartholomew or St. Anthony or a pilgrimage to St. James or Good Works save, then they surely are my savior. If St. Francis, then he is my savior. But then what is left of the honor of the child who was born this day, whom the angel calls Lord and Savior, and who wants to keep his name, which is Savior in Christ the Lord? If I set up any savior except this child, no matter who or what it is called, then he is not the savior. Could we say that the population of Jerusalem had already developed within their religious system through that system itself, a contentedness with the saving capability of their religion and were initially indifferent to the birth of the true savior? People like that today, very religious, have no idea what the meaning of the coming of Christ is. So because of ignorant preoccupation, jealous fear, indifferent pride, religious ritual, people miss Christmas. We could talk about the Romans. The Romans missed Christmas because of their idolatry. That's a sad thing to see. Luke 2, look at the first three verses. It came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria and all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. The whole event of Christ's birth, of course, is surrounded by Roman influence and presence, yet the Romans had absolutely no part. Not only did the religious world miss Christmas, but the Romans missed the whole thing. Caesar was actually an agent of God in the birth of Christ. Caesar was the one who put out the decree that resulted in the prophecy of Micah being fulfilled, Joseph and Mary being in Bethlehem. And it says there it happened as a result of the decree of Caesar Augustus. Now the man's name was actually Gaius Octavius. He was known as Octavian Caesar. He was the Roman emperor from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. He was a grandnephew of Julius Caesar. Just a brief background. Caesar was murdered in 44 B.C. And Octavian learned that he had willed him to be his son and heir. So he changed his name to Gaius Julius Caesar. Uh, Mark Antony left his wife, Octavian's sister, Because he became infatuated with Egypt's bewitching Cleopatra and began to show more attention to her than Rome So Octavian and the Romans turned on Antony and in 31 BC defeated him in the Battle of Actium And after that, Antony and Cleopatra committed suicide And so in 27 Octavian began to rule and received the title 27 AD received the title from the Senate Augustus Caesar Augustus means majestic means big shot you know Caesar the big shot so he took that title and he decreed attacks during a time period when Quirinius was the Roman governor in the land of Palestine Romans were everywhere there is a terrible blasphemous lie that says that Jesus was born From a Roman soldier by the name of Panteras Who cohabitated with Mary and produced a child A hellish lie But the Romans were all over everywhere It was their sort of um, presence That in an occupied sense militarily kept control of Palestine And yet they had no thought for Jesus Why? Idolatry They were into idolatry up to their ears They had all their own false gods And again, the parallels are striking. People today with all their false gods and all their idols of materialism and sex and whatever it might be, miss the meaning of Christmas. And then I can't help but think about Nazareth. It's incredible to me that Jesus spent all those years in Nazareth after his birth and Nazareth didn't understand who he was. I mean, they tried to kill him. And if we could, uh, if we had the time, we don't, we could look at the story of Jesus in Nazareth and the people and their response and their reaction to him there. Suffice it to say that the Bible says he had no honor in his own country. They had the living son of God in their little village, and yet they did not acknowledge it. They would not acknowledge it. Nazareth, by the way, was Joseph's original home, about 55 miles north of Jerusalem. The people, for the most part, were crude, somewhat violent, had a bad reputation. Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was kind of Hickville. They were the the, the sort of uh, Palestinian rednecks. They never knew Jesus. They tried to throw him off a cliff when he grew up and made claims in their synagogue about being the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. What was the reason? I'd say familiarity familiarity They were just too familiar with him to accept him as anything special. Oh boy. The deadliness of being familiar with Christmas details. You ever think about that? Do you know how familiar our society is with the details of Christmas? They can sing every Christmas carol there is. I turned on the radio the other day and I heard a well-known homosexual entertainer singing O Holy Night. I wanted to open the car window and throw up. I mean, he, he was singing in it with all the ethos imaginable. Oh, holy night. What kind of hypocrisy? But you're so familiar. I mean, I don't think they know where Jesus stops and Frosty the Snowman starts. I don't think they know what a Christmas carol is and what a, a simply a Christmas song is. Just familiar. I mean, it's so familiar. They see the cards, the manger scene, they hear all the songs, and the deadness of being familiar with Christmas truth. So familiar, it grows so cold in the heart. And if you don't think that's true, then ask yourself how excited you are about Christmas. And if you're excited about it, what is it about it you're excited about? The birth of the living incarnate Son of God. True. Familiarity breeds contempt. Old stuff. People miss Christmas. They miss it because of ignorant preoccupation. They miss it because of jealous fear. They miss it because of prideful indifference. They miss it because of religious ritual. They miss it because they have false gods. And some people miss it just plain old familiarity. They just look right through everything that's going on. And if I may suggest to you, the real scrooges of the world are not those who miss the joy of giving, but they're the ones who miss the joy of Christmas that comes in Jesus Christ. Behind it all is really one thing that we have to keep in mind. The reason Christmas means so little to people is because, frankly, they don't believe, right? They don't believe to the point of salvation. So what meaning has Christ? He's not their Savior. Why get excited about it? that's the tragedy and let me suggest to you and this is really why I said everything I've said up until this point let me suggest to you a challenge people are in a Christmas mood all around us they're thinking about all of these factors of Christmas let's make sure as far as we're concerned and as much as is within us possible to help people not to miss Christmas. Okay. Any way and every way we can. See if we can't help them to focus on the real issue. Some of you. Have unsaved people in your families. And when you go home. Make sure they don't miss the reality of Christmas. During the time when you're away. For the semester break. You're going to have occasion to speak to many people. See yourself. See yourself. As an ambassador on a mission to convince people to understand the reality of the birth of Jesus Christ. Let's be part of helping people see the real meaning of this wonderful time of year when we remember Christ's birth. Well, let's pray again.